Hey guys, welcome to a new series I'm starting today called Heavy Revy, and we're going to examine the book of Revelation. And uh, it's one of my favorite books. I'm obsessed with it, which is kind of a surprise considering the, the topic. Uh, but, you know, when you look at, and I'm, I'm finding this more and more as I dive into the end of the age, um, that a lot of the Bible, or the Bible has a lot to say about the end of the age. In fact, minor prophets, major prophets, all of them prophesied the end of the age um, with very specific details. Uh, we've gone through the book of Daniel, and that was the basis for what we're now going to look at in Revelation. And um, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4, uh, because that's where I started. I wrote a book a while back called Hear the Lion Roar. You can get it from our website, uh, destinationchurchclovis.com, or you can um, get it at amazon.com. And it goes into detail in uh, into the, the seven churches and the messages. And I think you'll find some stuff in there that maybe um, you had never heard or that will confirm things that you've studied. But anyway, Hear the Lion Roar. Uh, is a great book that I wrote. Gosh, I don't even remember how long ago I wrote this. Um, 2013. So it goes into the message to the seven churches. But like I said, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4. So you'll probably want to put a, a marker there because the first passage is actually going to be in Isaiah 66. But we're going to start our study in chapter 4 of Revelation. So he, here's what um, I want you to know right off the bat. Number one is the study of Revelation is a continua continuation of the study of that we started in Daniel on the end of the age. It's important to know that the events in Revelation are not sequential. Some of them are, um, but they're not ordered in a sequential ordering of events. What happens, and I like to call it BTSs, behind the scenes. So what you have is... Uh, a set of things that John saw that are going to happen on the earth. And then he gets to see the behind the scenes of those events. And, and so we'll go in and out. It's almost like flashback it back. So um, we'll have those types of things occur repeatedly in the book of Revelation, which if you don't know that can cause some confusion. And by the way, I'll show you exactly where the catching away of the church occurs as well. So John wrote them down in the order of which he received the revelation, not necessarily again in sequential events. Now, why the seven churches, uh, not other churches that were in the region? So I want to read this to you from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. Um, and this is by William Ramsey. He uh, said that he proposed that these church cities were selected because in their given order, they are the postal and judicial districts, which a courier from Patmos could, would encounter and from which his letter could be distributed most effectively throughout the province of Asia. From Pat, Patmos, the letter carrier would arrive at Ephesus, travel north to Smyrna and Pergamum, and then turn southeast to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This forms a circular route through the west-central portion of the province. 
Other church cities not mentioned are located beyond the circular route and could easily be reached on a secondary route from one of those cities. So this shows something about God I love. He is very efficient in his work. And so the, I mean, God, if you look at it, picked the churches because it was Jesus speaking to them. It wasn't John picked them. It was a revelation from Jesus, the resurrected Jesus that caused John to fall over as if dead. Um, Jesus picked these churches because of the root, which is interesting. Ramsey's explanation has the advantages of fitting the geographical positioning of the seven cities, maintaining the sequential order in which they are presented and explaining why other church cities are not mentioned. It also corresponds to what we know of early church communication elsewhere. For example, if Ephesians is an encyclical, then it may have been similarly distributed to neighboring churches. Also, when Paul sent his letter to Coloss, the Colossians were to send it on to Laodicea, and then Laodicea was to reciprocate with their letter from Paul as well. So in other words, you have the main route, and then each of those main churches on those routes would then uh, send out the message from themselves to the other churches in the region. Now, some have said that the, each uh, church can represent the different epochs of the church age. I think there can definitely be some prophetic significance in that. Um, others, you know, say that they represent um, uh, church history as we're seeing it unfold and that we're in the uh, Laodicean. Uh, I, I can see that, but I also know that in some places, you know, a church might be more like the Smyrna or it might be more like Sardis or Thyatira, um, then in our culture, maybe we look more like Laodicea. So I do think there is, a, excuse me, a very practical reason. Um, now, the other thing that is crucial in understanding the book of Revelation is that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in the very first verse of chapter one. This is not a revelation of the Antichrist. And if you get that backwards, then you can get into fear over end time events. And so it's just like before you have a child, the labor pains and the pressure you feel intensify. It's the same thing in Revelation, but you have to keep your eyes on him. There's a, a, a passage in uh, Joshua, I think it's chapter three, where it talks about how the ark is going to be 2,000 cubits ahead. Uh, and as you cross the Jordan, which was overflowing its banks, because at the time of the harvest, and there's so much prophetic just in that statement, but it said to keep your eyes on the ark. And so Jesus obviously is the full manifestation of that picture. And he's 2,000 years ahead of us. And so we have to keep our eyes on him. Or like I said, things can um, get a little bit nerve-wracking. So the things that John saw serve as signs and then time markers that we are supposed to recognize so that we recognize the time that we're in. So one of the examples and why we're starting off in Isaiah 66 is I remember years ago, I think I was probably like in my 20s or my 30s, I was asking my grandfather about World War II and he was young. He was only probably like 16 uh, when that occurred. And he said that at, during that time, they thought it was the end of the world. I mean, Hitler was the Antichrist. 
Um, the world war, you know, went along with, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. I mean, there are so many things that seem to fit, but there was one thing that had not yet occurred. And that's why, um, world war two couldn't have been the end of the age and Hitler and all that because of this one thing for sure. And that is Israel was not reborn yet. So in Isaiah 66 in verse eight, it says, Whoever has, who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Whoever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pangs begin, her children will be born. Now that's interesting. By the time her birth pains begin, her children will be born. Well, uh, a lot of scholars just thought that was impossible to think that that scripture could apply to Israel being reborn. You know, when it was uh, written, uh, I mean, Israel had been taken or was about to be taken um, by the Syrians. And then later, Judah was taken by uh, the Babylonians. And, you know, it caused the exiles. Well, when they came back, they still had a nation. But then fast forward to Rome. Uh, which we stayed in depth with our Daniel study that Rome, what happened with them is it scattered. It called it caused a diaspora or the scattering of the Jews throughout the nation because or throughout the world because when Titus surrounded the city just exactly like Jesus said was going to happen and destroyed it, no Jew was allowed to stay. And so they had to flee um Jerusalem. And so that caused a, almost a two thousand year exile of the Jewish people until the Balfour Agreement. And so what that did is it reformed and recognized Israel as a nation and that her rightful land is in Palestine, which of course that caused all kinds of problems after that. But because of what Hitler did, Israel was reborn. That's the beginning of their birth pangs and that starts a countdown to the end of the age. So now we do have that. Um, now, I mean, give or take, you know, a hundred years, uh, we're probably looking at as far as the, the end of the age. But I just wanted to say that in that we need to understand what the scriptures say. You know, a lot of people say that they're um, pan-tribulation, meaning everything's going to pan out in the end. And it and that and I, I appreciate what people are saying, but it is our responsibility to know what the Bible says about the end of the age, especially considering that God has so much to say about it. Um, I think it is a lack of wisdom to not understand what is going to happen and the signs and the things that we need to look for. So beginning our study, we're going to look again, chapter uh, four of Revelation, verse one. Like I said, I wrote a book called Hear the Lion Roar that goes into all the seven churches, which you can get on Amazon. So we're just going to skip ahead to here. Verses one through six, it says, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Uh, let's see. The one sit, oh wait, sorry. Uh, sitting on it. Uh, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and Carmelian, 
and the flow and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four elders surrounded him, and twenty-four or twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed with white and had gold crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living be beings, each covered with eyes front and back. Okay, so after this refers to the things that have to happen on the earth. And I believe, I mean, obviously he's clearly referring to the end of the age by what John is seeing. Um, but I want to clarify the word be, uh, being in the spirit. It's a Greek word that means a supernatural non-material being. So what this tells me is that John was either, um, what's the word, uh, caught up to heaven to see what all is going on in heaven and then viewing the earth from that perspective or he entered into a visionary state and was seeing things play out in front of him like a movie. Um, but it can also mean, you know, being in the spirit that he was in prayer, uh, that he was uh, meditating and pondering the word. So all of those apply. But to me, that's the cause. And the effect is he is in the spirit and he is seeing supernatural events play out on the earth, probably like a movie. Uh, the 24 thrones represent, you know, they can represent the tribes and the apostles. Of course, when this was written, most of the apostles were still around. So I'm not sure if that does apply. But we do know, and, and what's interesting, um, the word, I think it might be the word throne. Um, one of those words, I saved this a long time ago, means uh, is actually in the Greek Sanhedrin. So it's the court, the heavenly court of the ancient one that Daniel saw uh, sitting on his throne and the 24 elders with their thrones are seated around him. So just picture it. You got Jesus in the center. You have 12 on this side and you have 12 on this side and the Sanhedrin, the heavenly uh, Supreme Court is called into session. Okay. So it's, it's, he's setting the, the background, the context for all that he saw the location of the story. Uh, the um, book of Ephesians, which, you know, if you take it as, okay, you've got the uh, Is Israeli tribes or, and then you have the apostles. I mean, again, I guess it could be those, but in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, it says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that surrounded us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles excuse me, to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So, um, you know, 
reconciling the idea of past and future people on thrones and him bringing in the one new man definitely could fit with scripture. I just wanted to throw that out there for you guys. Uh, now, the imagery that John is seeing has actually been seen before by Old Testament prophets. Again, if you've been following along with the Daniel company study, uh, Daniel saw a lot. In fact, I believe that Daniel was a preview of what John saw. In fact, what Daniel was told to seal up, I believe John saw later. And then there were parts that even John had to seal up until the end of the age. But in Exodus, um, see how this is very close to what John is seeing uh, in verses uh, chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. It says, on the morning of the third day, thunder rolled and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. I'm sure it's very scary for what they saw. It says, The Lord descended to Mount Sinai on his throne, and um, with his throne comes the sea of glass, the living creatures. All of those things are seen repeatedly throughout the Bible. Uh, Isaiah, I think, chapter 6 also um, saw the same thing. So we have a lot of it in Ezekiel, a lot of it in Exodus, and John is just seeing the same throne that these uh, Old Testament prophets saw. Researchers have discovered this mountain. It still has the burnt uh, top. It has the cleft where Moses was placed, and it's actually in uh, Saudi Arabia at Mount Sinai, um, and there's still marker stones from that time period that are around the foot of the mountain, which Jesus or which God said, do not go past those and don't let your animals go past those because then you will die or your animals will die. All of that's been discovered. It's really fascinating. Uh, a book called The Gold of Exodus, The Discovery of the True Mount Sinai by Howard uh, Blum is one of the best books I've ever written or ever read. Uh, and he was either he or his the guy that was with them wasn't born again. And once they found Mount Sinai, he decided that God was real. So it's really neat. Um, now the seven torches represent the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven is the number of completeness and perfection. And there's several uh, references to the Holy Spirit functioning this manner in the Old Testament. One is in Zechariah 4, 2 through 6. It says, what do you see? And I said, I see a solid lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I saw two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. And uh, so, you know, the, he asked the angel, what does this mean? What do these mean? And the angel's like, don't you know? And he said, no. He said, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. I will not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit. So the sevens, light, oil, etc., just represent the perfection of Holy Spirit and that he is perfect light. He is perfect seeing. Uh, everything about him is absolutely perfect and complete. And then in Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, one of my favorite passages, we see the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. One, 
um, is a branch bearing fruit from the old and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So there's the anointing, uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. So we have seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, Ezekiel uh, in chapter one says, on July 31st of my 30th year, while I was in the, was with the Judean exiles before the Kabar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So this similar language to John. This happened during the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's uh, captivity. The Lord gave this message to Ezekiel, son of Buzi, a priest beside the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians, and he felt the hand of the Lord take hold of him. Now, that may signify a type of heavenly trance that he was in or that he was snatched up into the, uh, the heavens to see, but I really feel it was more of like a trance uh, state. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet had hooves like those of a calf and shone like burnished bronze. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings. The wings of each living being touched the wings of the beings beside it. Each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. Okay, so we've got the same thing that we saw here in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We've got lightning. We've got um, fire. We've got cloud. We've got four living beings. Um, that have hooves and wings and four faces. Uh, and the four faces are important because they're moving as one unit. And these, personally, I believe, are protecting the presence of God, the throne of God. So wherever the throne of God manifests, you see these living beings. And, uh, and they can move any direction without having to lose sight by looking behind. Um, so... Uh, I, I think they're possibly cherubim, but they could be a, a totally different type of supernatural being. But they're ever, ever watchful of him and their wings are covered with eyes. So they never take their eyes off of God uh, while at the same time navigating back and forth. Okay, so that establishes that what John is seeing uh, has been seen repeatedly uh, in the Old Testament. Let's look at verse 7. Um, the first of these living beings was like an, a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living wing, uh, beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Okay, so if we get back over into Ezekiel, verses 10 through 14, it says, Each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle on the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings, one pair stretched out to touch the wings of the living beings on, the other, on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. 
They went in whatever direction the Spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. So you can see the importance of how they're designed. The living beings looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, and lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them. And the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. I mean, I cannot help but think about uh, Jesus where he says, where you see the flash of lightning, um, that's where the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man uh, is returning. Uh, so these beings are going to accompany the presence of God. So it's kind of interesting language here. The lion represents majestic courage. The ox represents strength. The human face represents intelligence, and the eagle represents speed. Of course, you can also ascribe to it uh, supernatural gifts as well. Uh, but in 15 of Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, I want to go deeper into what he is seeing with God visiting in this vision. It says, As I looked at these beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them. One wheel belonged to each. The wheels sparkled as if made of beryl. And all four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel uh, burning crosswise within it. The beings could move in and out of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. I mean, this is, like, this is weird stuff, right? This is just crazy. When the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And when they flew upward, the wheels went up too. The spirit of the living beings was in the wills. So wherever the spirit went, the wills and the living beings also went. When the beings moved, the wills moved. When the beings stopped, the wills stopped. When the beings flew upward, the wills rose up, for the spirit of the living being was in the wills. Spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. And beneath the surface, the wings of each living being stretched out to touch the other wings, and each had two covering its body. As they flew, their wings sounded to me like waves crashing against the shore or like the voice of the Almighty or like the shouting of a mighty army. When they stopped, they let down their wings. And as they stood with wings lowered, a voice spoke beyond the crystal surface above them. Now, if you look at what uh, um, John is seeing in verse 6, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal, and then he goes into the living beings. So it's very interesting, the correlations here. And um, and also the sound of his voice is very similar to what John experienced when the Lord started talking in the uh, chapters 1 through 3. Um, okay, so in the vision, I saw what appeared to be a throne of blue uh, lapis, lap Lazuli, I guess how you say it, above the crystal surface over the heads of the cherubim. So this is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10, 1. We see this again, uh, or we see this first in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, where it says that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant hue, lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Isn't that amazing? Uh, okay, so all of these references, like I said, are the throne of God. Okay, 
the throne room, I guess you would say. So a ruler sits in his, his throne room to conduct official business, official occasions. In other languages, a throne is the seat of judging or the seat of decision-making for a ruler. So what this is telling us is, like I said at the beginning, the heavenly court, or the Greek word is Sanhedrin, the supreme court of heaven and earth, is being seated. John is witnessing the court coming into session because some judgments, some decisions are about to come down. Okay? Um, now, a king or queen on earth, they don't sit on their throne at all times. Our father does. Uh, but in this instance, with the elders and all of them, we see some type of official business is about to occur. Okay, so in verse 9, it says, Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. So, real quick on the word elders here. It's the Greek word presbyteros, and it refers to a person of responsibility and authority in matters of socio-religious centers, both in Jewish and Christian societies. In some languages, this word referred to older leaders, and a more appropriate term would be counselors. Uh, it's also the ancients, the fathers, and the ancestors. And of course, in the Jewish Sanhedrin, you had uh, human elders uh, mentioned in Matthew twenty six fifty seven. Okay, so we we see similar throne room uh, events. This is establishing that what John is seeing is borne witness to by past uh, revelations and visions that others had, including Moses, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah. Worship is a natural response to seeing him. So the whole court scene is, uh, is in the context of worship as the one true king because he alone deserves all worship. So this is setting the stage. Now, uh, I'm excited about this study because I think maybe some questions that you may have had in the past, they're going to be answered. <clears throat> Excuse me. Revelation is not hard to understand once you understand the pattern. And that's really important. God is a God of patterns. If you look at um, creation, he has patterns in everything. He has the seasons. He has day and night. He has um, your fingerprint patterns. He everything has a pattern to it, and there in some a system of patterns. Like sometimes things are done in twos or threes, uh, sometimes in sevens. So we need to look for those patterns so that we can understand the end of the age. And remember, the only reason I'm I went and dove into this study so deeply is because I was angry all the time at what is going on in our country. And the Lord's like, you need to study the end of the age because things are going to get even hairier than what you're seeing right now. And you cannot be in a place of anger all the time. 
And uh, so it's really, really neat. Like I said, it's I'm obsessed with it. Uh, like Revelation, I read it, or Proverbs, I read every day. Revelation um, is turning into one of my favorites. Um, so we're going to look at timelines. We're going to we're going to talk about okay, what part is wrath? What part is tribulation? Are they the same? Where are we raptured? Where does all of these different things that you know you hear a lot of people talk about? Um, what when do they happen? Where do they happen? What what behind the scenes uh, sections are versus those that he's seeing a sequential order? So we'll we'll dive into it. But if you've not watched the Daniel Company, you can listen to it on Destination Church's podcast. You can also watch it on our YouTube channel. And then if you want to study verses one through three, like I said, I wrote a book, Hear the Lion Roar, years ago, 2013, on the seven churches. There's a lot of good stuff in there that people I don't see taught often that you can get at our website or amazon.com. Okay, so I, I, I can't wait to dive into the timelines and stuff, but you know what? Precept upon precept, it's very important to systematically study the books of the Bible. When you piecemeal everything, you can definitely have some rhema right now words, but you will miss the overall context. And I believe that we've we've done too much. Um, what's what's the word where you just study a certain text and it's not in the context of the entire book? I can't remember what that's called. I used to know it, know it, but I, I believe we've got some weird doctrines out there because we do that. And uh, oh, and I wanted to tell you guys the crowns. I heard this really neat on a teaching yesterday by Bill Johnson. He said, we have to learn to receive honor. Um, and, and here's the way I receive honor, and here's the way I receive rejection. Um, when, I, when people honor me, I say thank you on the outside. And then on the inside, I say, Lord, we know who it is. There's no way I could be for this to this person or do the things that you've called me to do without you. So we know who the, who the, the true one that deserves the honor is, and that's you. But outside, you say thank you because people giving you honor is something they're supposed to do. You're supposed to honor the teacher, honor the prophet, honor one another, the righteous man, not just those that have titles, um, which a lot of people take and they're not even that. Just saying. Um, But it also goes toward what you can then give to God. So the crowns they took off their head and they put at the Lord's feet, they earned those crowns. But they now serve the purpose of honoring Jesus. With rejection, um, I like in, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians where it says the Lord will commend us. The word commend is he will brag. He will um, tell us good things about ourselves when he's pleased with us. He'll share how proud he is of us with his angels and other people that are in heaven or people that are in heaven. And, uh, And so we really just, as long as we're commended by God, and we know to whom the honor is due. Uh, that's how you handle it. And um, so anyway, that that blessed me. The other thing that I wanted to encourage you guys to do, this was so good. I read it this morning. Um, Chuck Pierce talked about a practice where he collected 14 of the core scriptures, life scriptures of his. Um, the reason 14 is 13 is the number for deliverance. And then 14, of course, is perfect generations of Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. I'm thinking it. But, um, and 
he regularly prays over them. He regularly makes sure that he is living within the context of those core scriptures. It's such a fun exercise. Uh, all of us have those scriptures that, you know, like if someone else preaches them, you're like, that's my scripture. I mean, you know, you can borrow it, but that's mine. You're like, we, we all have those. Like Jude, I think it's 21, 20 and 21 is one of the first ones he gave me. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 4 through 5, I believe, on the promises. There's so many in Proverbs that, you know, are kind of like my scriptures. And so I started writing down those core ones and asking Holy Spirit to show me uh, any more. And I plan on praying through them and, uh, you know, seeing how they're being fulfilled uh, in my life. But they can also tell you what you are called to do. And what was interesting is there was a lot of wisdom and wealth in there, which I knew that. Um, but also a lot of empowering other people to come out of bondage. So it was just kind of an interesting deal. And I think it's a fun exercise and that maybe you would enjoy it too. All right, guys. So I tell you what, this urgent education issue, I am going to do it this week. That's why I'm doing this one Tuesday so that I can do hopefully urgent education tomorrow. But I had to amp my game on my time management. I normally I'm very good at that, but I had to take it to the next level. I think I have it figured out because these things are very important to me and you guys are very important to me. So uh, I'll see you next week for our new series, Heavy Revy. We'll get into some heavy stuff, heavy revelation. Uh, in Jesus' name, we will. All right, have a good day. Bye-bye.